So if we look back here at Acts chapter 2, and uh, we, we go to this next aspect of it. So how can our passion serve the mission of the church? And so for you all who are here today, and a great tomorrow we'll have you know, the whole church here for sure, right? Well, the, the interesting thing about the church is this. Every church has a mission. So if you ask anybody at Firm Foundation Ministries, what's the mission of FFM is what everybody calls us, or people might refer to us as firm, that kind of thing. It doesn't matter. Uh, everybody will tell you to be the people of God in the community to impact the community. So we're in a very rural area as a church, the main church, in a very rural area, a very farming area, and those type of things. So the word community is a very good word in our area. So to be the people of God in the community to impact the community. When we planted out FFM, that phrase didn't really work too well, but we still love the mission. So if you ask people at FFM Kalamazoo, which is planted in a city of about 250,000 people, what's the mission of FFM Kalamazoo? To be the people of God in the city, to impact the city. Same mission. Same mission, right? So the and so what we're asking then is how does the how does this passion I was talking about earlier this encounter with Jesus how does it help us serve the mission of jubilee? So if if someone were to say to you, what is jubilee? Help me, come on, say it. Four R's. Receive the Holy Spirit. Reach out. Restore. Renew. Release. That's a renew and release. Okay. So receive. Right? So receive, reach, restore, and release. Love it. There we are. Boom. This is the mission. So what I'm asking us for this weekend, because this could be just a time filler. Hey, Don and Lisa are here from uh, the, you know, the United States, and uh, we just want to sit around and do nothing. Let's just at least have some service, and let's drum up an idea that he can talk about while he's here. No, that's not what we want to do. You know what I'm saying? It's not what we want to do. We want to, we want to really put this into play. How can our passion serve the mission of the church? Well... I believe we have a window of opportunity. I really do believe we have a window of opportunity when we look at this. Now, in our, in our main text, or our keynote phrase, our keynote text, we see what happened in Acts here, right? Like, they continued steadfastly. They con- continued passionately in the apostles' doctrine. Now, I just want to share with you that I literally believe that we've been given... Uh, a great opportunity, a window of opportunity. Paul actually asked the church to pray. Pray that God give me an open door, a window of opportunity. Right? He, he said pray for that. That's what we should be praying for, right? And I think the church locally has an opportunity to return to a spiritual heritage and reclaim what we see as the glory of the Lord. People ask me all the time, why are you so passionate about the book of Nehemiah? Why do you love that book? All of the discipleship I do with men is based out of that book. Uh, well, I mean, we branch out and talk about the scripture as a total, but the, the, the aspect of, the, of, of Nehemiah is absolutely incredible. So in Nehemiah's day, listen, you've got to realize, Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. He had never seen Jerusalem ever in his lifetime. Is an 800-mile trip for him from where he was located. That's virtually in that day impossible. I mean, you're just not going to do it, right? For us, from Michigan to uh, South Carolina is a 750-mile trip. It takes about 12 hours. We think nothing of it. Just get up in the morning. We'll be in South Carolina by the evening, right? That's what we do. Now, in you guys in the UK, that might you might just lose your mind. 12 hours in a car? I was telling Raj the other day, I was like, if you ever come, we'd love to, Lisa was sharing, we'd love to take you up to Mackinac Island in Michigan. And it's the UP up there. There's no motorized vehicles allowed on the island. You have to take a ferry to the island. We'd love to take you up there and see it. 
And they're like, how far away is it? It's like five hours from our church. And it's still in Michigan. Yes. Nehemiah's 800 miles away, never been to Jerusalem a day in his life. Why should he care? Absolutely. Jerusalem at that time is laying in ruin. The Hebrew word is a dead, rotting corpse. That's what it looked like. And Jerusalem is surrounded on all four sides by enemies. You have the Arabians on one side and the, uh, the, the barbarians on the other. I mean, you have all of these people surrounding Jerusalem. And when those people looked at Jerusalem, they were supposed to see the glory of God. Jerusalem was supposed to be the glory of God. Nehemiah said, tell me about the city. What do people see when they see it? And the report was, they see a dead, rotting corpse. And he, he'd never been there. Why should he care? But he was passionate about God. He was passionate about the things that God loved. And his motivation was the glory of God. And when the world saw Jerusalem, he wanted them to see the glory of God. And he could not sit idle. My question to us, if I talk about passion, when the world looks at the church, what do they see? The, the easy question is, what should they see? The glory of God. When they look at the New Testament church, look at Acts chapter 2, what did they see? They saw the glory of God through His people. They saw the church and they saw the glory of God. When the world looks at the church today, do they see the glory of God? And if the answer is no, it's not their problem. Nehemiah said, I'm not leaving it to someone else. I'm not leaving the glory of God to someone else. I, I've got to go. I've got to go. I've, my job is to make sure that when the world sees Jerusalem, they see the glory of God. And that's the way I feel about the church. When the world sees the church, if they don't see the glory of God, I've got to go. I have to. I have to. I can't wait on someone else. It doesn't matter if I am... See, Nehemiah's no architect. He's a food taster. He has no idea how to build anything. He knows how to tell you whether a ribeye is properly cooked or not. Whether wine is aged right or not. Don't think he didn't. Listen, if you are the wine taster for the king and your job is to be the last result to make sure the king doesn't get poisoned, I guarantee you, you make personal friends with the kitchen. As a matter of fact, if I'm the wine taster, I run the kitchen. I employ all the cooks. Because I don't want to die either. I'm running the kitchen. And I'm going to know everybody who's in the kitchen. And if somebody's in the kitchen I don't know, like I want everybody to meet Jesus, but some people just meet him sooner than others. I don't know you. Right? He's not, a, he's not an architect. He's not a builder. He doesn't do any of that stuff. But he is a man who loves the glory of God. And he is a man who cares about the glory of God. The church has been given a window of opportunity, right? And herein lies our problem. The opportunity is closing quickly. And I think we need to address it. Because what has happened in modern day, especially Western world Christianity, is we have created a culture of Christians who are programmed, driven, but not driven by spiritual passion. I mean, when new people come into church, some of the first questions they ask us is, what are the kids' ministries like? Like, what is it, how am I going to benefit from being here? And we want to serve people, don't we? Say yes, you do, yes. Right? And I want to create a culture where people are consumers because the church, this church has 
better that this that what i want to do is be a steward of the glory of god and we rejoice in america that our nation has a strong military but i am sad that we are satisfied to live with a foundation of weak morality We can't answer the hard questions. You want me to tell you why we can't answer the hard questions? Because we don't want the answer to lie in morality. It's the truth. I had a United States congressman call me. And he said, uh, Pastor Don, I'm, I'm, I'm running for uh, you know, re-election and the issue of same-sex marriage is going to come up in the campaign. Will you drive down to Fort Wayne, Indiana, have dinner with me, so that I can have a discussion with you about how I morally answer this question? I, like, when I'm elected, I'm elected to serve all the people those that I agree with and those that I don't agree with. I want to serve them. And so how do I morally answer? I don't want to answer the question politically. I want to answer the question morally. Because that's what I want to drive how I serve people. So my wife and I drove down. We had a great dinner. It was great. And, you know, four hours we sat in this restaurant. And we wrestled with how do we morally serve people? when, right, those factions would, what's the answer? What's the answer? We're satisfied with living on foundations of weak morality. Morality teaches us to serve people. Legalism teaches us to judge people. So we take pride in the practice of our religion, there's no, but there's no evidence of passion or maturity in our relationship with Christ. I had a gentleman who came into my discipleship class this year. It was an incredible opportunity. He came in. He has been in church all his life. He's in his mid-50s. Been in church since the day he was born, and all of his adult life, he's been a leader in church. My first night in discipleship class, I asked that guys to raise your hand. Raise your hand if you've ever not read the Bible through. And he raised his hand. Mid-50s, been in church all his life, been a leader in the church all his life, but he's never read his Bible. And the church was satisfied with that. I'm not. I apologize to him. I said, on behalf of every church you've ever been into, I'm asking forgiveness for that happening to you. You should. Like, he's got to read his own Bible. I can't read it to him, but... There's not a culture of it. There's just not a culture of pressing into passion of God, right? At the end of the, the disciple, it was incredible what God had done in his life. I, I don't have time today to share all of that. We pride ourselves that we can produce pageantry. Yet we can't find a place in our schedule to invite the person next door to us for worship. I can. This is my pond. I can croak in it because we're building a new building, and we talk about building better buildings, and yet we refuse to consistently build mature Christians who grow into biblical believers that impact their culture. It's so much easier to put brick on brick. We spend years and millions of dollars designing these programs, stimulating growth. We we want the world to respect us and and uh, all of those good things, and, and, but we don't have a relationship with one another. We have a window of opportunity, guys, to act right now, and passion is very important. We've got to make a conscious shift into this mode so that spiritual passion to grow in Christ becomes who we are, why we live, and that produces mature, self-feeding believers. Self-feeding believers. Jody said, if I called the pastor every time my kids were acting up, I'd never be on the phone, off the phone. 
just deal with it. Get a stick and knock him out of the tree, you know? <laughs> That's hilarious. She didn't say she'd knock her kid out of the tree with a stick. She, I added that, okay? She didn't, she didn't say it. I didn't say she didn't think it, okay? Huh? Um, see, only when the passion is evident will church begin to see the spiritual passion that we have touch everyone. So just a few minutes ago, the last session, what we did is we had an, uh, a, a unanimous consensus that spiritual passion is a biblical principle. What we need to do now is understand how the Spirit of God provided that conviction. Okay? There's a difference between consensus and conviction. All right? Only when the believers in the body are convicted that we must participate in a biblical process will there result in spiritual maturity. That's what we read about in Acts chapter 2. So we can make passion and this shift, right, to, uh, from consensus to conviction, we, we, can, we can move into these things. The, the question is how? What do we do? So can the church once again impact and influence culture? And the answer is... And the answer is, you are singing a whole lot louder than that earlier. Yes, we can. And yes, we should. Yes, we can. And yes, we should. That's not a political rally. We should. But the window of opportunity is very important, and it's related to where we're at and, and what God has called us to do and our mission our mission, your mission at Jubilee is into your culture. And, and so the mission at FFM might be a little bit different because we're, diff, we're, we're differing with different cultures, aren't we? So, for instance, uh, you know, I, like with Raj and Charlotte, we're always asking, and this is the question we ask, does it cross the pond? Do you understand that phrase? So, like, for instance, Lisa, my wife, she kept saying all week long while we are at Raj, and Charlotte's house, you know, she kept talking about, okay, I have this many pants, and I probably need to, you know, we need to wash clothes at this particular point, right? And so the kids are all giddy, and they're laughing, and they're like, oh, she's in pants, you know? <laughs> my wife's like, what was wrong with my pants? Why were the kids laughing? Well, we, it didn't cross the pond. <laughs> we didn't know these are trousers and your underwear are pants. We didn't. We didn't know that. We didn't. So now we know why the kids are laughing, you know. <laughs> Does it cross the pond? See, right here, right now, you don't have to worry about that in your mission because this culture is your mission, right? And your ability to reach this culture is incredible. It is absolutely incredible. You see, let me give you case in point how powerful, though, the church can affect culture if we decide the mission is more important. Where else in all of the world would you have an Iranian and an American worshiping together? Nowhere else but in the church. Nowhere. The American people and the Iranian people have no problem with each other. It's our governments that are crazy. Why? Because we want to legislate morality. We See, but the church supersedes all of that. See, our passion supersedes all of that. Our passion demonstrates to the world, we've got it right and you have it wrong. And we want to give you what we have. Watch us. Watch us. Watch an American and an Iranian be friends. Watch us. Because that, and the world goes, how is that possible? Because Jesus is involved. And our passion for Jesus is there. This is what happens to us, right? So we can make this transition. There's two areas related to this window, right? That's before us. And so the first one is the reason for our courage. And, and uh, you know, like the Brazilians are like, oh, you're crazy. You're passionate. 
you know, is it courageous to grab an alligator by the neck? Not really. Probably kind of stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that river is uh, really, not only is it chock full of alligators, but it's, uh, it's a freshwater river, and it's chock full of freshwater stingrays. Um, not good. So the Brazilians are like, I got out of the boat. There's stingrays are everywhere, and now he's got an alligator by the hand. What are we going to do? I was like, here, hold this for me. <laughs> ah! No, let me give you a reason for my courage. Let me give you a reason for the courage about the church. Here's a historical perspective, right? It happened once, it can happen again. Say amen. It happened once, it can happen again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship of the breaking of bread and to prayer. This devoted word in the Greek, it, I'm not going to do a David Campbell for you, but I'm just going to tell you it's, it's, it means earnest towards perspective. I'm, I'm diligent about it, right? I'm, I'm, I'm exercising practice over it. I'm adhering closely to it to attend, like, right? It's diligently, this word devoted. Devoted. I'm earnestly practicing what is put before me. So the first church of Jerusalem did not. Everybody say did not. Did not meet and vote on a consensus for the direction they were supposed to go. They didn't do that. They didn't do it. You can't show me where they did it. Jesus said, go make disciples, build a church, right? And the church that I build, right, the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it, right? And, you know, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? And on this rock, I'm going to build my church, the profession, right? Not on Peter, on the confession that Jesus Christ is our foundation. That's what I'm building my church on. I'm building it on me. Right? I'm building it on me. And so go into the world and do this thing, right? And so there wasn't a need. Listen, you don't need to pray about what God already told you to do. We don't need to pray about evangelizing. We need to, we need to evangelize. Can we pray that God would open doors? Yes. But we should never pray, God, should we go win the lost? Let's take a consensus. Who in the church, raise your hand if you think we should win the lost. You know what I'm saying? Okay, who in the church thinks we shouldn't? You know, now we're going to have a mess in here, Pastor, and people are going to come in here, and they're going to mess up our church, and they don't know Jesus, and they're going to not understand our cultures, and they're going to cause all kinds of problems. You know the best thing that can happen to our church, our church happiness and our church comfort is that non-believers come in and mess it up. Just get your wipies out and get ready to change some diapers. Okay? I mean, who, who cares if they make a mess? You know what I'm saying? So our passion, we don't need... They didn't meet to decide on a consensus. No, they were acting out of spiritual conviction. This is what God had directed their lives to do. And they had this example, which was their, their spiritual leaders. Peter's one of them on the day of Pentecost. And he's out there doing it. They're following them, right? So their leaders, their leader was prepared to lead them, but we need to watch how he did it. Christ did not, you, let's notice what Jesus didn't do in preparing the disciples to turn the world right side up. Let's notice what he didn't do. He didn't have them focus on the politics of the day. Who, who cares who's the prime minister? That's God's business. I do my civil duty, but the, the rest of it's God's business. Who cares the president of the United States? As a matter of fact, I read in my Bible that God is the one who appoints and ordains. So, you're, my job is just to pray for the leader. Remember what John the Baptist did? He came to the leader and he said, you can't, this is not right, but he didn't dishonor the leader. He 
never dishonored the leader. It cost him his head. But he didn't, he didn't dishonor him. His job was to say, you can't, this is not right. These are, so the, the issue is, even Jesus didn't have him focus on that. He didn't have him attempt to compromise with religious structure, the Pharisees sure would have liked that, right? He didn't tell them to develop a focus on programs to instruct people. So what did Christ do to get his followers to a place of maturity that we read about in Acts chapter 2? You know what he did? Listen to me very carefully. It's, it's very complex, okay? He poured himself into them. If you're passionate about Jesus and you're passionate about church, what God pours into you, you should pour out into this community. And it's not that complicated. But we poured out. He poured his life into men. He gave them his life, his message, so they could infiltrate the culture with a transformed life, a passionate desire to serve God and to build on others. It was done by conviction, not by consensus. There's a big difference. It was done by conviction. So they were not only willing to die in the process, and they, they were willing to live to it. Today it's still big, right? Oh, those people are so spiritual. They are willing to die for Jesus. I can meet a ton of people who are willing to die for Jesus, and it's really admirable. But I really want to meet some people who want to live for him. It's easier to die than it is to live. I'm not making light of martyrdom. Please hear me with your good ear. I'm just saying, martyrdom probably isn't the call of my life. It isn't. It probably isn't. Even though as a pastor, sometimes I feel like I get strung up and staked out. But martyrdom is probably not the major call in my life. Living for Christ is every day. And, and, and living that out in a passionate way. It's important to have strategies. It's important to live for Christ, Christ in such a way. It's so incredible. There's a judge in our community. This guy, he is, I cannot get him to accept Christ. It's incredible. He's a judge. Every day he's in the courthouse and he's ruling. And I've been in his courtroom and, I, and, I've, and I've, I've sat in there and listened to court cases and people were involved in, and him make rulings and those things. And he, would recognize, he recognized me from being in the courtroom quite often. Quite often because people are on the merry-go-round and, and I'm trying to help and I write a letter and say, you know, Judge Shoemaker, you know, can you not throw this kid in jail? I was in there with one kid one day. It was incredible. This kid had just ruined everything. He was in so much trouble. He was going to jail. He was going to jail. And I written a letter, and I laid out one, two, three, four, five, six things. This is what I want to do with him. And I asked the judge. I said, please don't send him to jail. I went through the police academy. I understand that jail has nothing to do with rehabilitation. All he's going to do is sit there, and he's not going to be rehabilitated. He's going to spend all this time and not get better. Here's what I have laid out for him. So the prosecutor got up in the courtroom and said, we want to throw the book at him, we want to throw him in jail. He's sorry, he's no good, he's going to jail and all those things. And I thought, oh, this kid, he's going to get it, man. And really, he deserved it. I was like, oh, he's going to get it. And the defense lawyer stood up and, say, and said, uh, Judge Shoemaker, uh, Pastor Don has written a letter to the court and has... Um, uh, made some suggestion, and I would let my, like my rebuttal to be Pastor Don's letter. Can you, is it okay if we read the letter to the court? So he read my letter to the court. Out Everybody was like, Pastor Don is suggesting this, 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 and this, and he's asking the court, instead of throwing him in jail, to give him to him so he can walk this stuff out. And I sat there and I was like, oh, we're both going to jail. Judge Shoemaker said, I have never heard anything like this in my life. This was his words to the court. It was packed full of people. And he said, I think what the pastor is offering this young man is much better than what the prosecutor is suggesting. I am turning him over to the pastor for the duration of one year. You have one year to accomplish all the things that are listed to me. And every three months you will check in on your progress. Case dismissed. And I was just like, Oh, we're all going to jail. 
We walked out of that courtroom, and you better believe I grabbed that young man right by his ears. No lie, I'm physically. You listen to me. I am too little to go to jail. <laughs> it's me and you, buddy. Changed his life. We did in four months what we promised we would do in one year. And we got him off early. We got him dismissed early. And he brought a young lady to the church. He wanted to marry this young lady. And I said, not until you tell her what you did. If she still wants to marry you after that, then we will proceed. Great young man, great young man. This was, man, this had to be nine years ago now. So this judge would come to my office. After this, Judge Shoemaker showed up at the church office. He's talk, I heard him. He's talking to the secretary, and I thought, oh, boy. And uh, my secretary said, yeah, uh, pa- Judge Shoemaker, Pastor Don's in. Um, I don't think he's busy right now. And, and I just thought, oh, boy, this kid, I'm going to kill him. He must have done something. And he came in and sat down on the couch in my office, and I, I closed what I was doing, and I went over and sat on the other couch, and we just began to talk. And he said to me, he said, I was raised Orthodox Catholic. I want you to tell me about this Jesus. I mean, I'm like, I'm going to jail. I'm going. And so we had the conversation about Jesus. And he, he, he politely looked at me and he said, thank you very much. Do you mind if I come back? No, sir, Judge, you, you can come anytime you want to come. I, if people are in my office, I'll just kick them out. I don't care. Just come in, right? Whatever makes you happy. And he left. The next week he showed up again, unannounced, on no appointment. And he walked in he said, I want to know more about this Jesus. <laughs> okay. So we talk about Jesus. This went on for weeks. And at the end of that session... Uh, the, the, I, I said, Judge Shoemaker, you have asked me a lot of questions about Jesus. I want to ask you a question now. And he said, that'll be okay. I said, do you know this Jesus? Do you want to know him? I said, you can. And he said, I'm really thinking on this. I said, you know, this is not a court case to win or lose. This is not a decision for you to decide what's right or wrong. This is about eternity. You need to receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. I knew I was not only going to jail, I'm going to go to prison, this guy. I never did get him to receive Jesus. But he kept coming back all the time. I love it. It was just like one of those things. It's not by consensus. It was by conviction. He saw what the church did with this young man and he said, we've never seen that before. I want to know not more about the church. He didn't care less about the church. He was a Catholic man and he would tell me all the time, once you receive Jesus, I'm Catholic. When's the last time you've been to Mass? 20 years ago. Okay, Judge Shoemaker. (laughs) Once you receive Jesus, Catholic. I mean, that's not what I asked you. He saw an impact. And I'm not promoting us. I'm telling you about this passion that flowed out, okay, that, that in this one instance nine years ago that blew into something that was incredible. Judge Shoemaker began to promote our church in the community. He didn't even come to our church. He would call up and say, I've got a young man who's been stupid one of the things i'm going to require him to do is be at your church every sunday are you going to bring him judge shoemaker no i'm catholic (laughs) okay but his probation officer is going to check with you and he better be there every sunday morning yes sir (laughs) send me the paperwork i'll sign it and we had to sign the paperwork every week that, yes, he came. He came to church. And Judge Shoemaker was sentencing people to church. <laughs> I was like, yes! This is so great! And all the elders are like, what, are you, what is going on? I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. This man is crazy. 
It was just so it was so much fun, right, to see that impact, right, that conviction play out inside of all those things. The church operated in a way that was making a difference in the community, so much so that the high officials were taking note and wanting to know more about what are you doing here? In Acts chapter 2, the church operating under the spiritual conviction and devotion to themselves, these four areas I'm going to go through very briefly is incredible. Doctrine, we like doctrine. Yes, I've got to go home and deal with an issue. I got an email the night before I was leaving. I was like, because I challenged false doctrine from the pulpit. And you know what happens when you whack a beehive? It's false doctrine. And it's not even difficult doctrine. All you got to do is read your Bible. And someone's not happy about it. I said, I don't have time to deal with you right now. I'm going to England. When I get back, we'll deal with it. I love doctrine, right? And the whole issue is, well, Pastor Don, I could pick this apart, pick that apart. You know what? I would have never, ever, ever done that to my spiritual father. I would have never compared him to anybody. Even if I thought he was wrong, I would have never. It was just my culture in the South of the United States. You did not disrespect leadership. You just didn't do it. You honored leadership. You let God deal with people. That was it. And so those type of things, and I just felt so, like all I did was read the scripture. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says, be continually filled with the Spirit. Pretty simple. That means... God continually wants to pour His Spirit into me over and over and over. He wants to do it more than once. The false doctrine was you got all the Holy Spirit you're going to get on the day you were born. Okay. That's a pretty limited God because I used up all the Holy Spirit I had yesterday. I need more today. I really do need more today, and that's why the Bible says you need more. Fill, be continually filled. Be continually filled with the Spirit of God, right? Let the water, the washing of the Word, let the Spirit of God renew your mind. All these things, right, flow over, and that's what God does inside of us. I love doctrine. The teaching is incredible, right? On the day of Pentecost, the persons who were saved needed to be grounded in faith the exact same way we who are committed today in our lives in Christ need to be grounded in His Word. Yes, yes. When our, when our leaders preach doctrine, we should celebrate it because Paul said, do it. Teach it. That's what Paul said. We should celebrate that. Yes, thank you for that. They celebrated it. Look what it said. It said, continued steadfastly, permanently, with passion in the doctrine of the apostles. Fellowship. Let's go quickly here. Fellowship is important. It's very important. I love fellowship. It's brought by the Spirit of Spirit of God, it means more than just associating in circles and groups or civic clubs or those type of things. There's a vast difference between secular and social participation and spiritual fellowship. Big difference. The reason the world would separate Sarush and I, right, is because they don't understand fellowship. They don't understand it. How can an American be friends with an Iranian? Because you don't understand fellowship. I love it. Bring it on. Plus, his food is pretty good. <laughs> Secular participation is based on neighborly association. Don't like you? Don't associate with you. Hello, somebody. Spiritual participation is based on spiritual union that has brought us together. In my circles, we call that the joining of the Lord. Has God joined us? Yes, God has joined us. Who cares about the rest? I don't care. You know what? That's one thing that does cross the pond, the joining of the Lord. 
Say amen. Help, hello, somebody. Come on. Amen. It does cross the pond, the joining of the Lord. It will cross the world. It is a part of what God is doing in all of the cosmos, right? Its distinctiveness is right. The Holy Spirit in between us is the same. The one that lives inside us is the same. The Holy Spirit creates this union and it molds our hearts together as believers for a purpose that is greater than who we are. Fellowship is being experienced by believers. You know, what, you know why I love fellowship? Because it forbids unattached Christian life. That's why the Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. To, don't forsake it. So people can be all high and mighty and tell me all the time, oh, Pastor Don, you don't have to go to church to love Jesus. I'm not saying you don't have to, but I'm saying if you love Jesus, you probably should love the things that he loved. And he was always hanging out with the things he loved. And he, he loved the church so much that he gave his life to it. And so if you really don't love the things that he loves, I'm wondering. I love the church. I probably said that. You probably didn't know that. I love the church. My wife says, you're like an old dog. You just come home when you're tired and hungry. I love the church. I love what I do at the church. I, I mean, there are days, right, when it's heavy, you carry a burden, and you just think, wow, you know, I, I, I tried my best, and people weren't happy, or, you know, I couldn't fix this problem, or, or those type of things. You know, sometimes I really think people think pastors are Superman. You know what I'm saying? Like we can leap a building in one small bound, you know, and we can faster than this. I really think that sometimes, and I just think they, they think that. And uh, you're right. I did bring my Captain America shirt, so we're going to take. <laughs> fellowship forbids unattached Christian life. Christians who don't want to fellowship really concern me. Because they're not passionate. Steadfastness. Why wouldn't I want to spend time with you? You know, you people are like, oh, thanks for coming over. And I'm like, no, thanks for fellowship because i know a lot of folk that don't want to go around the corner and see me <laughs> you think i'm lying to you there there are a couple of people who don't they don't like me at all oh we had been to the grocery store and i was like did you see that person we were walking down the same aisle they just turned around did you see them watch what i do i'm gonna go down the other aisle <laughs> oh, watch i'm gonna make watch this <laughs> Like, get your camera out, videotape this, watch this. Christianity is first an individual matter, then it becomes a spiritual corporate matter. And fellowship is, is incredible. Like, God never called us to be an island, He didn't. How about communion? Can I walk through that a little bit? Um, I, I, I mean, I don't want to get into. Uh, whatever about communion uh, at, at firm foundation ministries we do communion the every fifth sunday so if there's a fifth sunday in the month everybody in the church knows that's communion sunday and we promote communion when fifth sunday comes up we want you to begin to prepare the whole service is going to be surrounded around communion i know some churches that take it every week in our in our areas i less or more it's i'm not talking about that the phrase breaking bread to the early believers just was a fact that they observed and remembered the Lord's death. They set aside some time to observe what church calls communion, or the Lord's Supper. It, 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 it was that thing as a symbolism of who he was and what he did and his body and everything. And it was his death that had saved them. Because of his death, they were now reconciled to God. Because of his death, they were in fellowship with God. Because of his death, they're made new creatures in God. Because of his death, they're infilled by the Spirit of God. Because of his death, now they're bearing fruit of God. Communion was important, and they celebrated in that way. And we should celebrate it that way. We should be passionate about it. I get to take communion with you. And the fact is, when I do take communion with Sarush, I can never, ever, ever mention anything again about the past. 
you hurt my feelings, it's gone. I'll never mention it again. I took communion with him. We're beyond this. We are passionate about our fellowship with each other, and I, I don't care about that. I care about being in fellowship with you, and this brings... See, the Lord knew that the disciples needed one last thing before he went away, and he used this, this supper, this fellowship, this communion in a way that they would never, ever, 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 ever forget it. They wouldn't forget it. They couldn't forget it. And he said, if you pay attention, he said in there, I have desired with desire to have this meal with you. He had eaten plenty of meals with them. And he never said that before. But this one he said, I've desired to, with desire to eat this meal with you. This meal. And, you know, and they all sat on one side of the table. They didn't sit around the table. You know the picture. They're all on one side of the table. You'll get that later. You ever see the picture of the Last Supper? Why is everybody on one side of the table? <laughs> so Raj can turn his camera sideways. And <laughs> if Raj were painting the picture of the Last Supper, it would be crooked. <laughs> and slightly out of focus. It would. There'd be some filter on it, right? Like, we just ruined a masterpiece. <laughs> all they now were, think about this, because the communion reminded them that all they now were as a people was due to his death. And they wanted to remember that. And this great passion and devotion to his death is incredible. The Lord, had this, this, this promotes our mission. I'm on mission with you. How does passion play out in the mission of our church? Because we take communion together and I'm on mission with you and that is more important than any issue I might have with you. I'm on mission with you. I am on, and I, I'm on mission with you. I am on mission with you. Right? Prayer. Let me cover this one. This is incredible, right? Early belief. You know one thing that I'm going to just... I'm just I'm going to bless you in a way. One thing that I'm always blessed by when we come over here is how much time you spend in prayer. The American church doesn't spend that much time in prayer. No lie, we have a prayer meeting every week uh, from uh, Wednesday, after, Wednesday evenings from 6.30 to 7. It's our prayer time. Everybody's allowed. Worship team is there. We come in. There's a list of things we're going to pray over and then we're going to pray for people. You know what? I, if I can, I've got a church. There's 450 people in our church. If 10 people show up to that meeting, you, you, what are you doing? Thursday morning, I'm going to get a phone call from someone who didn't show up to prayer meeting. Pastor Don, can you pray for me? I could have last night. <laughs> but you didn't show up. You didn't. Every week it's... We've been doing this for seven years. You ever hear of the Brownsville Revival in Pensacola? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's akin to the Toronto outpouring and all that kind of stuff, the Brownsville Revival in the, in the uh, early 90s, mid-90s. Do you know that church canceled its midweek service three years prior to that and all the preacher would allow happen to do on midweek was prayer? And they cried out to God for a revival. Most people don't know that. Most people don't know that his staff wanted to fire him because he canceled midweek service and turned it into a prayer meeting. Open mic, all we're doing is praying, and we're praying for a revival. Most people don't know that. And that revival carried on for five years. Every night except for Monday nights. And people were lined up four hours before church service to get in. My wife and my daughter went. I never got to go over. We lived an hour and a half from there. They went over and Brownsville Revival, but it was birthed in prayer. I'm so blessed by the time you spend in prayer. There were people who persevered in prayer. The idea of the church should join in prayer, unite in prayer. See, this is so important. Psalms uh, 40, 145, 18, The Lord is nigh to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. 
through prayer, they received what they needed from God. They received this provision for both their souls, their lives, and they received this direction for the church. Prayer is important. That is, be passionate about it. Heavenly provision, God loves us in a way that's incredible. And he's provided all the tools that are necessary for us as a church to work into the world, right? We, if we, we only need to look at Acts chapter 2 to understand that he's provided everything we need. The Spirit of God filling us individually and filling us corporately. The critical point is often ignored and neglected that God has already provided the command to be filled by the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit. It's a command both individually and corporately. Boom. We, we pray at home. This is our prayer. Come and dwell with us, God. I don't want a visitation of God. I want God to take up residence. Make this your address. Right? Don't just visit us and leave, Jesus. Make this your dwelling place. God inhabits. He dwells. That's his address. He inhabits the praises of his people. The prayer of our life moving out in that he packs us. So here's our response to conviction. Are we good? Yeah, we're good. When we've responded to the Spirit and we are direct, directed by the Spirit, conviction as a result of spiritual passion... Uh, all of that that dwells inside of us, two very obvious things stick out to me. Number one, there's a commitment to the Word of God. Now, you have to understand, I, I do have a passion for the Word of God. Okay? I love it. I love it. I love teaching it. I love teaching people how to read it and how to understand it. And I love getting people on a path where they make it part of who, what their life is, right? And we've got to transfer our trust from ourselves our, our ingenuity and our trust, has got, everything's got to go to him in his instructions, his strength, his power, his provisions. Lean not onto your own understanding. There is a way that seems right unto man. Makes sense. But this way teaches me what is right unto God. This way it continues to fill me with passion for God. You know, and, and I've been reading it and studying it. And one of the young men who were in the discipleship group, this kid is, I don't know, he's probably 16 years old, and, and uh, he's got a great gift of God in his life. And I, I took him on mission trips with me before and spent a lot of time. I love this kid to death. And uh, you can just tell it's mutual, right? Like we have so much fun together. And he said, when we talk about the Word of God and those type of things, he was just like, you know what, Pastor Donna, how do you know so much? And I said, look, man, I've been reading this every day for 25 years. I didn't start yesterday. And I don't know enough. Let me give you the reading schedule, okay? And will you read the Bible with me? Will you read the Bible with me? Will you read it on purpose with me? Like, I don't go to the Bible to get a sermon. I go to the Bible to get life, and then those messages flow out of that. Pastor Rick uh, had given me a charge to preach on a Sunday morning, and he said, you're preaching this coming Sunday morning. And it was very rare that he didn't give me an outline or a passage of Scripture because he would do that with us disciples. He'd say, here's your outline, or he'd say, here's an outline you're going to preach next Sunday morning. Okay. Or he'd say, here's your passage of Scripture you're going to preach next Wednesday night. Or I remember one time he handed me an outline. He said, I've written this outline. I want you to preach it next Sunday morning. But when you get up and go to the pulpit, you can't take your notes with you. All you're allowed to take with you is your Bible. You've got to learn to trust the Holy Spirit. So go home and do your diligence and study. Right? Study to show thyself approved. But when you get up and preach, all you're allowed to have is... He would do that kind of stuff and just freak you out, man. Okay, here we go. Right? He would, just, he would just do that. He would just hand us those type of things, right? And, and it, was, it was incredible what would take place because of our time in the Word of God. Where he had told me, hey, you're preaching on Sunday morning and, and it's very rare. I don't care. Whatever the Spirit of God lays on you. I would have much preferred an outline. It was easier. I don't, whatever the Holy Spirit lays on your heart, you're preaching next Sunday morning. Whatever the Spirit of God puts on you, 
So I was on my lunch break, and I was over at McDonald's, and I was flipping through the scripture, and he would always come into McDonald's, Lisa worked there, and have a coffee every morning or whatever, and, and I was just there, and I didn't see him, and he, he watched me for a little bit, and I was just flipping through the scripture. Finally, he walked over to me, and he said, what are you doing? I was like, hey, Pastor Rick, how you doing? And he said, you don't get to ask me a question before you answer mine. What are you doing? And I said, well, you told me I was preaching Sunday, so I'm looking for something to preach on. He took my Bible from me. <laughs> he said, I better not ever catch you doing that again. Don't you ever go to the Bible to look for a sermon. There's no life in that. You go to the scripture and you find life, and when you preach a sermon, it will come out of it. Then he handed me my Bible back and he walked away. Like this guy. His life. This word is incredible. Commitment to God's word. Again, we go back to Acts chapter 2. We find the believers committed to the teaching of the word of God. And, and they're acting in obedience to the teaching of the word of God. They received the word. How about this? A commitment to growth. Growth is good. Growth is good. How many of you want your church to grow? Come on. Everybody raise their hand. Yes, we do. If you don't, there's something wrong with you. Both as an individual and as a corporate body, as a church, we must acknowledge what's missing and we've got to submit to a biblical process, right? Which means spiritual change in our lives. And God will use the spiritual passion to mature us as disciples. Here's the end result. Here's the end result. The church was producing spiritual mature disciples for Christ. And they were living in a radical relationship. That's so good, right? Isn't that the testimony that we want for our church is that everybody's living in a radical relationship with Jesus and with each other. As a result of this, their culture and their world was changed. Period. Just right there, their passion for the Word of God because of all this and their commitment to it, right? This is the end result of it. They went, they impacted, right? And the glory and the honor of God came because of their passion. How does your passion serve the mission of this church? Because you can sure let your passion sure serve your own agenda. You can. Well, I'm a better preacher than Raj. I should preach every Sunday. You got an agenda. Who cares? I don't care. I don't really care anymore. It just oh I could I could do I could I can sing better than Andy. Who cares? I don't care. One young lady wanted to join our worship team, Eddie and Ann Renee. They do, I mean, you'd think it's an American Idol show or something. They do tryouts. Got to be able to sing. And what's your heart motive? Why do you want to join the worship team? If you can sing, that's great. But see, Eddie and Ann, their passion for worship has nothing to do with hitting every key and every note correctly. It has everything to do with our motive to be in the presence of God. Do they want to do it with excellence? Absolutely. And they practice hard, but that is not their motive. Even when they were recording an album, they said it's not that important for us. It really isn't. We just want to express our heart in it. But if you've ever met a guy who is working on the album, it is very important to him. You missed that note. Redo it. Listen, if we're serious, if we're, if we're serious about really reaching people, being a passionate people, letting our passion serve the mission of the church, the four R's, the four R's. If, if your passion won't serve those four R's, whose will? Whose will? If your passion won't dictate how you live your life, if your passion, let me, let me just lay this out, now I'm going to get real, okay? If your passion for this church doesn't affect 100% of your life, it falls short. In other words, if, it does, if your passion for this church doesn't affect the way you spend your finances, 
right? Then your passion doesn't produce financial investment in the church. Hello, somebody. If your passion does not affect the way you look at your work, then you'll let your work get in the way of being involved in the mission of the church. Well, I can't be there because... You know, there was one guy who's like, uh, you haven't been to church in six months. And he said, Pastor, I'm sorry I haven't been to church in six months. I've had to work. I said, you need a new job. You need a new job. You know why? Because you're important and I need you here. You're important. You can't come to any of our leadership meetings. You can't come to any of the church meetings. All you're doing is, you're not even an employee. You are a slave, my friend. You need deliverance. You, that's not a job. Find a new job. In our area, it's not difficult to find a new job. Trust me. My son right now makes 1700 U.S. dollars a week before his bonus. And he works from 5 o'clock in the morning till 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And he's off every Saturday and Sunday. You need a new job, brother, and you're probably going to make more money. This is, you need a new job. Find a new job. You, this is, right? If it's affecting that, you can't be involved in the mission of the church. You can't help me with the four R's. You receive, reach, leasing. You can't do it. Your passion isn't invested in those. And Jubilee needs your passion invested in those things. If Jubilee is going to make a difference in the culture around it. It's, there's no way about it. There's no excuse about it. There's no need to even argue about it because that's the truth. It is the truth. And a church that isn't passionate about its mission won't invest in its mission and it will not make a difference in the world around it. All you'll do is have meetings. And having meetings doesn't change culture. It doesn't build kingdom. And it doesn't honor God. It's just not the purpose of it. Having meetings allows us to express our passion and go out in direction of that passion. Period. That's what it does. We can see the vision that Christ has given us become a reality. Please say amen. We can see the vision that Jesus has given us become a reality. And I will tell this until God doesn't let me stand in the pulpit anymore. I believe it to be true. I intend to see the vision that Jesus gave me become a reality. I intend to see it. And I'm not worried that others can't see it. Might not even be their job to see it. I'm not frustrated that they don't see it. My passion's flowing into it. Watch this. Here's where I'm closing. Our passion serves the mission of the church by producing a people who are biblically based. International community of believers glorifying Jesus. Come on. We do it together by building a radical relationship for life. Should you see the shock on people's face when I go back home and say, I was able to go to Farsi worship. And American Christians are like, wait, you, you, you were in the room with Iranian people and no one blowed you up? It's like, no. No one, no one blew me up. It was fun. It was, it was a blast. I loved it. And the food was great afterwards. I'll never forget Farsi worship. I'll never forget that night. You never forgot that night. Signed a blank piece of paper, didn't we? We gave God a blank check to spend our lives. I'll never forget that night. I don't know how, that was a couple... A couple years ago. And I had everybody sign it first before I preached. You have to sign this piece of paper. Put your name at the bottom of it. At the end of it, I was like, congratulations. You just signed, your, you just signed a blank check to your life. God will now spend it. <laughs> it was so good, right? This is what our passion does. And this is what I believe we want to see. This is what I believe we want to see. I, I, I believe this is what your eldership team wants to see. I know this is what our team wants to see. And it's incredible that there, there are people in our church who just go, eh, I'm not real sure about it. I'd rather stay home and watch reruns of Bonanza. 
Does Bonanza play over here? It does. It does run over here. That's great, Bonanza. Oh, man, that is so good. Gun smoke, right? Who doesn't love Festus? Like, Festus is the world's greatest philosopher. Listen to him. My wife's like, you cannot quote that in a sermon. Gunsmoke will be at our home and Festus will say something, you know. And my wife will say, please don't put that in the sermon. I was like, oh yeah, it's going. That is great. Like, that is a Solomon proverb if I ever heard one. It's just Festus' proverb. Here the window is open, church. It is open. And our way of thinking, paradigm, the way of thinking, has to shift uh, and develop maturity. I, I never, ever want to hear our churches say we didn't plan. I'm so picked on about planning. At church, at home, and everywhere. Right? And David Campbell would pick at me and he's like, well, I bet Don's got a plan. <laughs> yeah, I got a I'm not stuck on that plan, but I'm, at least I got one. One guy was like, you always have a plan. I was like, do you have a plan? No. Well, I like my plan better. You don't even have one. At least I got one. I want a plan. I want a plan to disciple. I want a plan to train leaders. I want a plan for the glory of God. I want a plan for mission to be expressed. I want a plan for the passion of God's people to be established in the community so that they see God for who He really is. Right? Jesus is so much more than just an icon on a desktop. He's so much bigger than that. And I would ask by the conviction of the Spirit of God that you join me in this. That's what I would ask. Passion for me is incredible. And my wife will tell you, my, this is my wife's testimony, not mine. She will tell you that I am the same in the, at home as I am in the pulpit. It's I just, just the way I live. My wife, people say, is he this crazy at home? And she's like, you've got no idea. <laughs> you should see him chasing the raccoon around. I, I let the alligator loose in the house one day. It was crazy. I had the alligator. And I was like, watch, put her down. And my wife, she just had, I mean, you would thought the Holy Ghost hit her. <laughs> she was moving in the spirit. <laughs> you know, I was like, it was hilarious. And there goes the alligator <laughs> through the house. You get that thing right now. She's not hurting anybody. Leave her. She's going to hurt me. <laughs> the joy of passion is everything to me. You know why? Because I lived so much of my life without it. And in 1992, the Spirit of God poured him, God poured himself into me. And I love, I learned to love what he loves. And he loves his church. And he's passionate about his church. He's passionate about his mission in the church. And so should we be. Amen? Amen. All right.